Welcome to a Black Friday edition of the Global Podcast Unfiltered with Bobby and Luke. It is Friday, November 27th. I'm your co-host and co-creator, Bobby Stutzman. I'm Luke Mohat. And Luke, I repeat Global Podcast because as of yesterday, we are now being downloaded and listened to across six continents. And this is only episode six. That is that is fantastic. Welcome, planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the pod today, you know, as we always do, we go back and forth on ideas and topics for our podcasts. Yeah, and lots we, to talk about. We really let the conversation dictate which topics we, you know, we get to. But currently, the plan is we're going to uh, discuss COVID and have an update on COVID. We're going to discuss Biden's cabinet picks, uh, do kind of a deep dive into that. Uh, we're going to also discuss the treatment of whistleblowers in the Trump era. And the last one that we want to get to is the indigenous land Absolutely. Uh, with the Supreme Courts and all that. So exactly. seems like a proper, proper topic for this time of year. Yes, it is. We'll get after it. Let's go. I don't need no fraud. I don't need no drama when you call. I don't need no hate. Soon as I wake up, keep an eye out for the snakes, yeah. One of my favorite Nikki songs, and Luke, we can play it now because we have moved to Anchor. All right. So first up, a COVID update. What do we got? All right. So we've got 11 NCAA games that have been football games that have been either canceled or postponed from this coming weekend. We've got Alabama my roll tide Saban out for real this time COVID positive and uh, will for the first time since he uh, has been a head coach not be on the sidelines of a game that his team is playing and it's the Iron Bowl it's their uh, classic rivalry game absolutely is um, Auburn <laughs> and then also, I just saw this morning that Lamar Jackson, the Baltimore Ravens, yep. is now COVID po positive. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what is going on? You know, if, if, you know, we're seeing numbers spiking, we're seeing numbers spiking all over the country. Right. And it, if these multi-million dollar programs can't keep their marquee players and coaches safe what um what hope do the rest of us have well it's scary you know we had uh, they reported a uh, hundred thousand new cases yesterday and that was without 21 or 22 states not reporting anything yeah so um i believe there's you know the fatigue has set in yeah and not just set in with you know us normal folk but you know 
sports in general, we're seeing that at the college level as well as the professional level. I think um, in, in, in order to get, get down to where we want, because, you know, as, as you know, when it comes to contact tracing, mm-hmm. when we got 200 and some people are thinking by the end of December, we're going to have well over 300,000 cases a day. It really makes it almost impossible to contact trace efficiently enough uh, to, you know, make it worth it. Even if people are getting tested and getting the, you know, results back in a timely manner, which is also starting to get delays two, three days. Uh, Remember at the beginning of this April, May, it was seven to 10 days. And I think we may end up getting back to that point, which makes the test useless if it's taken seven days to get the results back. Yeah, exactly. If you test negative in the morning, it is quite possible for you to be asymptomatic and uh, contagious by the afternoon, just depending on uh, when it uh, it sets in, Uh, which again, yes, making contact tracing next to impossible. And I'm going to because I didn't ask her for her permission. And it's somebody that we all, we all know. We have a, a former classmate that is currently COVID positive and she you know, works in a situation that has taken you know, COVID very, very, very seriously. And so she's almost sure that um, it did not come from work or any of her work contacts, but it came from community spread in Gotcha. Our uh, little hometown uh, that we are both from, oh. and she has no idea where it came from. You know, it, it just it, there, there's just too many, too many contacts, too many, you know, too many, you know, exposures to say exactly where it is. Right. We have, uh, you know, we one of our one of my classmates, one of our classmates is the the mayor of Seward right now. Yep. And. Uh, they Shout out to Josh Eichmeyer. What's up, Josh? Uh, they had a, a city council meeting where they were going to discuss a mask mandate for, for Seward. And a bunch of people showed up without masks on to protest, to protest the mandate. Uh, deliberate stupidity, in other words. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So not only were they protesting the mask mandate, they showed up to this meeting, which is, of course, indoors. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and right. we're there, uh, God knows spreading what, you know, it just, it just boggles the mind once again, that, you know, I don't understand why this mask has become such a hot button. Polit- I mean, I understand why it did, but it should never right. have been become this hot button political issue. I, I, I just don't get it. Right. Uh, especially well, um, let's yeah. let's kind of go back because we've got you know personally we were at the forefront of of this of this pandemic with a technology solution so back in february we got vetted by the department of homeland security barda nih uh because our solution that we brought to the forefront was what we call a lethal plan for contact tracing mm-hmm. you know every you know mm-hmm. everybody wanted to do their own solution so we got vetted right so 
you know, this cloud solution working with various telecom providers, which were partners with, with everybody. I had the contacts and connections. We brought in another company to the table that had the platform and they were actually involved with helping in the Ebola crisis. And that's one of the, this is what really scares me, Luke, mm-hmm. is that getting all the data that we did about Ebola, you know, the biggest difference, well, there's some big differences, you know, don't get me wrong. The biggest difference, you know, number one, Ebola had a mortality rate of 48%. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. 48%. COVID, obviously nowhere near 48%, but it spreads, you know, the spreading of, of, of COVID-19, you know, think how easy it spreads through the air and, and all that. Now, then, you know, say we have, you know, the next COVID spreads as easy as 19, but has the mortality rate of Ebola, right? Right. So we've got 12 million people that have gotten COVID in just the United States. Now, imagine if almost half of them were dead and and in a body bag. Right. So we we were given a lot of data about Ebola. Obviously, this is not Ebola. And but our solution would have would have basically on a 95 to 98 percent accuracy. From coast to coast, we, we'd be able to provide contact tracing for everybody in the United States because the problems that, that hospitals have is that people say, well, I was only in contact with three or four people. Well, over the last seven to 10 days, you've been in contact with like 20 people. Exactly. And that's just yeah. kind of gone to the wayside over time where it's not accurate at all. And right. we were simply coming to the table with a solution that would not require people to lie. People weren't, weren't having to hide where they were, you know? So this solution was, was very, you know, it could have been very in, integral to the very beginning, but yeah. then because the administration were leaving it up to the States, we were essentially right. told, we love your solution, but you need to go to the state level. So that we did in early February, we started contacting not just the 50 states, we contacted Canada, countries and our contacts and connections across Latin America and Europe. And we easily found out that everybody was all of a sudden wanting to do their own solution. Right. Well, we're still got to decide what that is. Even here in the state of Colorado. uh, Governor Polis was the first team and we were actually vetted and became part of his technology and still are part of the task force, but right. they just rolled out their contact and tracing app just a few weeks ago. And we could have been doing it back in February already. So, yeah, as, as somebody who has <clears throat> a lot of <clears throat> non-social, but work-related contacts throughout the course of a week, because uh, again, I work in the cannabis industry, and here in California, we are de- deemed essential workers, and all of our operations carry on, um, you know, regardless of COVID. And so, I do my damnedest to, you know, work from home as much as possible, which I do a lot of the time. But there are 
certain times where I have to, you know, a big right. part of my job is compliance. Well, it's hard to do compliance if you're not physically in the, the operational center. So just in this past couple of weeks, I've been to a cultivator, I've been to a manufacturer, I've been to a couple of dispensaries, you know, and it's not just the people who work at those places, at least in terms of the dispensaries, but it's the people, you know, the customers that are coming in and they're then interacting with the people who work there. And then the people that work there are now interacting with me. So I, for one, would love an app or something that could be on my phone that would just keep track of all the places that I've been and all the people that I've interacted with. And that way, to your point, I don't have to worry about forgetting or lying or anything like that. It's just done. Right. And and so if I end up like our, our classmate COVID positive, it at least there's some kind of breadcrumb trail, uh, you know, to inform the the uh, scientists where I've been and how this spread could have happened. Right. And, and we just, uh, as of Sunday, we have a family member that also uh, started the morning kind of feeling like shit, typical yep. COVID symptoms. Yeah. Went and got tested and uh, they're positive as well. So yeah, um, they're, you know, they're going through it. Uh, they're doing, you know, they're doing okay. Uh, they're having, some mm -hmm. of the, you know, one day they've got a, a certain smell that's more of a perfume and it's all day long, regardless of what they're eating. They smell this perfume that they mm. haven't smelt in years. And then yesterday or this morning, uh, they were uh, smelling like dirt from a okay. farm or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. So, you know, they're doing, you know, they're doing okay. They're doing well. Uh, they're doing better today than obviously uh, last Sunday and Monday and yeah. earlier yeah. this week. So, I mean, this is hitting home. Yeah. Same, same, you know, dispatch from the field that I've heard uh, from this person who is COVID positive, no fever, no uh, oxygen problems, no respiratory problems, but right. uh, complete loss of smell, complete loss of taste and appetite um, and you know, other than that, the, the symptoms vary greatly from day to day. One day they feel like they could get up and carry on with life as normal. The next day they feel like they've been hit by a Mack truck and every bone in their body is broken and they cannot get out physically cannot get out of bed. And that is considered a quote unquote, very mild case. Correct. So, Correct. <laughs> you know, it, it's just astonishing that how how this disease, you know, it's it's I guess much like a tornado where it, it could suck up one house, but the house next door is left completely unharmed. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to to what you know to who gets a bad case and who gets a good case, or if there is right. such a thing as a good a good case, quote unquote. And so well, and you hear a lot here. about case loads, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people's caseload or the strength that they get is is varies from person to person. You know, why mm -hmm. does a 70 year old that gets covid test positive, asymptomatic, no symptoms at all. And then a friend of theirs gets covid same age. And, you know, within three or four days, they're in a hospital. So it's yeah. really it's really hit and miss. And there's so much that we still don't know about this virus. 
Right. And there's, there, there have been plenty of cases now of younger people. And I say younger people, people in their forties and under that have had severe cases. Cause I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm in my forties. I'm relatively healthy. If I get it, I'll be okay. You know, I'll get through it. And, and a lot, and thank God for the most part that has uh, played out to be correct, but there are plenty of people in our age category and younger who have gotten it and have gotten it really bad and even, you know, sadly passed away. And, you know, even if there's a half of, you know, whatever, you know, 0.3% chance of you, you know, actually passing away from it, not to say that the mortality rate is that low. It's not, we know that. Right. Um, wouldn't you take every precaution possible to protect yourself? Absolutely. So, and as know. simple as a mask, a 10 cent mask. Yeah. Wearing yeah. it when you're out, protecting yourself, protecting people you come in contact with. Right. Obviously, when you're out at a grocery store, sometimes it's very hard to, you know, keep six feet, eight feet, 10 feet distance. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And it's so simple. It just means that you give a shit when you wear your mask, when you're going out, even going into a gas station to get your your Starbucks drinks or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the case, when you wear that mask because it's required, you know, you're putting it on because you give a shit about your life and you give a shit about the people's lives that are in that gas station or exactly. at that church, which we'll get into yeah. um, or, or at work, you know, some right. people are still, you know, having to go to work and, and it's, it's, it's astonishing how it's such a culturally hot button topic because you now have people who, you know, I wear my mask when I'm outside of my home dwelling, my mask is on well, or right. outside of my car, you know, my right. mask is on. Right. Yep. And I go and I meet with certain people and whatnot, and they almost get offended if I don't take my mask off to speak with them. And I always just have to explain, you know, from the second I walk in anywhere, hey, I keep my mask on. It's nothing about anybody here or, you know, I just, I I keep my mask on at all times, you know? Right. Um, and most of them are like, oh my goodness, let me put a mask on. I'm like, yes, please. Um, <laughs> you know, but there are still those that just don't think they need to do it. Don't think that it's, uh, you know, helping at all. And again, even if it is a tiny, and now there's, um, I believe there was a study that came out of two doctors from Oxford saying that uh, the masks, masks might not, not be as effective as we thought. Well, okay, so that's as effective, but they're still somewhat effective, right? Right, so right. You do anything you can to, yeah. you know, protect yourself and others as much as possible. Right. Why, you know... <laughs> <laughs> well, and different studies are going to show different stuff depending on what you want to show, right? Exactly, CDC, exactly. EDC has done, you know, done their, provided their data. Harvard did a study. MIT did a study. The data doesn't lie. You wear a mask. It helps you. It helps the people you come in contact with. You know, obviously when it's airborne because COVID-19 does get transmitted airborne, Yes. That's what the mask is for. Now, if this was a, you know, a, a virus that was not airborne, you know, uh, similar to Ebola, Ebola was not airborne. 
um, then masks wouldn't be as a big deal. But, you know, we had a president from day one. Masks are necessary, but I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't want to wear a mask. Was completely against masks from day one. And then you, you know, you've seen all these media outlets that ask the, you know, from these Trump rallies over the summer, if the president said you need to wear a mask, would you wear a mask? And the simple answer was yes. Absolutely. So, I mean, going to a, (laughs) a, a city council meeting to protest masks, just make you look stupid, incompetent, deliberately trying to spread the virus and mm-hmm. you know your 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 whole mission and your you know is just lost because you're not doing the one thing that can help save lives yeah exactly i remember when i was I mean, it wasn't that long ago right when we were in college and so i was a young uh recently out gay man and the uh, second wave of HIV AIDS infections were starting and the everywhere you went, they were handing out free condoms. There were signs up about, you know, wearing condoms and, you know, the, 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 the message was not don't have promiscuous sex because you know, that, Young people do that, right? The the message was always wear a condom, always wear a condom, always wear a condom. And so one of our city council members here in West Hollywood, uh, who's within my age range, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's a little older, but anyway, um, was posting about this. And it just became at least within the, the gay community, like, yeah. If I'm going to have sex with somebody, I'm going to use a condom. Like it just was a non, it was a non question, you know, it just was the way you had to do it. And that ultimately, you know, that, that message of be safe, wear condoms spread out, you know, from the gay community to the straight community to, from the white community to the African-American community, everybody, it was just, you know, wear a condom, wear a condom, wear a condom. It's the only, it's, it's, you know, aside from abstinence, it's the safest way to keep yourself and others safe. Right. Right. Because much like COVID, the majority of people spreading HIV at the times did not even know they had HIV. Right. So you don't know it. So you just wear a condom regardless of, you know, you just do that. Well, he compared that to masks. And I'm like, oh my God, masks are the condoms of 2020. You know, you That's wear right. a mask. Got over 550 sitting in my closet right now. <laughs> you know, like you just wear a fucking mask. Right. How hard is it yeah. to do that? Like, yeah. it just, yeah, it, you know, it, it, you want to, uh, you, you want to be able to still go to gatherings and you want to still be able to see people, okay, wear a mask. And, you know, that kind of jumps me into, you know, something else that I've been thinking about, which is these, you know, where are these spreads coming from? You know, the, the, we, we've, we've seen it, the pandemic, it started mostly on the coasts and then has now filtered into uh, throughout the country. And we're now seeing our biggest spikes uh, throughout the interior of the country. And, you know, that, that makes me think like, 
you know, as, as we've discussed here in Los Angeles, we've now shut down the restaurants. Okay. You know, in Minnesota, I believe the governor has said flat out, do not gather with anybody from outside of your house. Right. Um, but in a uh, New York Times article, and I get a lot of information from the New York Times because I, regardless of what our current president says, I find it to be a pretty factual driven uh, journalism, pretty, pretty factual journalism, uh, and especially in their science sections. So this reporter, Apurva Mandavali, uh, she's a New York Times science reporter. Uh, recently wrote an article about, you know, where is the spread coming from? And she's discussing, you know, small gatherings, um, you know, the kind that you would have in your home or if you would go to a, uh, a restaurant and meet with just a couple, you know, I'm talking about less than 10 people, way less, like four five people, six people. And actually, she mentioned in her article, your home state, Bobby, Colorado, um, currently in Colorado, only 81 active cases have been attributed to social gatherings compared to more than 5,000 from correctional centers and jails, 3,300 from colleges and universities, mm -hmm. and over 2,400 from assisted living facilities. Um, and then aside from that, currently only 450 uh, cases can be attributed directly to small gatherings at restaurants, bars, casinos, or bowling alleys. So, right, right. you know, it, it's not necessarily these small gatherings that are driving it, um, but they are still, they are still definitely con contributing. So I guess my question is, you know, what is your take on small gatherings? A small gathering to me is, you know, our, our household here is Josh and I. And right. So if we want to have um, a couple of friends over and sit out on our patio and, you know, be respectful of distance and whatnot, is, is that, you know, it's not listed as the safest thing to do, but, you know, is it, it, it you know, what are you, you know, versus, <clears throat> excuse me, um, well, obviously large gatherings are not good, but right. where are we at on this? I guess I'm driving to the question, where are we at on this? Do we need to be saying like the governor over in Minnesota, no gatherings whatsoever, do not see anybody outside of your household versus other governors who are saying, be smart about it? Well, I think I think it's both. I think it's like uh, we talked about here in Colorado. So there was an article just last week. And some of the large spikes, as you mentioned, was in was in here in El Paso County, which is Colorado Springs and, you know, at the jails. And the article yeah. stated they quoting the inmates and quoting staff that they've had a severe shortage of one thing. And guess what? That one thing has been hmm. masks. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not giving inmates the masks, the the you know, the. Uh, the uh, employees haven't been using masks because there's wow. been none on premise. Some of wow. them, I guess, were, were using masks over and over and over. And, you know, so that's, you know, whole takeaway there has been a mask issue. Now, when it comes to personal life and your family, obviously, you know, the four of us here, my wife, two kids, uh, there's, there's not, you know, we see people, but we're not, you know, we're not going to restaurants, you know, we yeah. may order food, uh, we go pick it up or get it delivered. 
Uh, we're not sitting there hanging out in a restaurant and, you know, kind of the process right now is, yeah, most of them do a great job, social distance. So you've got a booth, say, and then there's at least six feet before the next uh, couple can can sit down in the next booth. And that's in all directions. So we went to yeah. um, a steakhouse like a month ago and, you know, we checked it out and there was six feet in, in, in all directions. Um, you know, people were socially distanced. Yeah. And then you sit down and you take your mask off to eat and all that. But um, a lot of restaurants aren't doing that. And people aren't, you know, when they're getting together with their fam, other family outside their immediate house and their friends, they may start wearing masks. I've, I've read articles and blogs on various social media. Hey, we started wearing a mask and then, you know, we started drinking the masks came off. And next thing you know, three of us have COVID and right. you know, one person was asymptomatic that spread it. So, yeah, you know, I think you really got to see what the virus is currently doing in your local community, you know, let alone your state, you know, uh, governor Polis here in Colorado has done a phenomenal job of getting out the information on a daily basis where we're at with new infections, hospitalizations, and he himself is now tested positive for, for COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, but the number here, the last number I saw was one in 48 Coloradans have COVID. Yeah. And that is a significant increase from just a week and a half ago where it was one in 110. So you can see that it's, 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 we're, you know, we're spiking here in this state and um you know we'll see you know what happens but here in el paso county as of today we just went to the what they call level red um it's it's the highest uh orders as far as you know lockdown orders before we get to a full-blown lockdown 10 percent right. capacities in restaurants and gyms and we're going to see how that goes, but if, if it continues to rise, we'll, I think we're going to be on a full lockdown order here really quick. Yeah. Meanwhile, here in Los Angeles County, as I've talked about much, <laughs> uh, the restaurants are closed uh, for anything other than takeout or delivery. But meanwhile, and gyms are closed as well. Our gyms here, and God don't I know it. Uh, my body knows it, uh, have been closed <laughs> this entire time. Uh, I, yeah. Um, and uh, our, our houses of worship have remained uh, outdoors with limited capacity. Um, but in her first ruling, and we were bound to talk about this woman eventually, so let's get Here into it. Here we go. Here we go. Amy Coney Barrett, our newest justice on the Supreme Court, has ruled in favor, uh, excuse me, uh, has ruled against uh, allowing states to limit the number of people in uh, religious gatherings, meaning that the Supreme Court has passed down a 5-4 ruling, and we'll talk about that in a moment here, a 5-4 ruling saying that uh, this one was specifically for the state of New York. The state of New York cannot uh, dictate to religious, if, if you are a church, 
They cannot dictate to you how many people you can have in your gathering. And this comes on the heels of a um, several hundreds of people uh, wedding in the Hasidic Jewish community uh, that was uncovered uh, through reporting uh, that happened in Brooklyn uh, right. and many other uh, churches just literally packing people in uh, to indoor facilities, you know, no ventilation whatsoever, really, other than, you know, you know, the, it's cold right now. So windows are windows are cold, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, um, it was a five, four ruling, like I mentioned, John Roberts did uh, chief justice Roberts did side with the liberals, you know, excellent that, you know, not, not excellent that he sided with liberals, just that, but excellent that he was using scientific data, right? He made a scientific data driven decision. Yes. Versus the conservatives, yes. including uh, Amy Coney, Coney Barrett, uh, who said, no, that is impinging on the religious freedoms of uh, people. So what is it? Is it impinging on the religious freedoms of people to say that uh, it is dangerous to have a packed, uh, a packed uh, church um, with people not socially distanced and for the most part not wearing masks? Or is that just being smart and scientific about masks. Right. And if you read their, you know, the information on their decision, number one, they, they, they did not mention scientific data at all. No. Their perspective and the way it was written was like, and as if the governor of New York, governor Cuomo was simply picking on churches right. and not closing anything else, which is simply not the case. Right. They, right. you know, it stated you know, and, and that's the way I took it. Hey, there's no scientific data. They reference no data. Right. There, and numbers are, are, are spiking in that area as we speak. Yeah. And, and yet they wrote their summation as if Governor Cuomo was just shutting down churches across the state and nothing else. Right. Which exactly. was which which blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder then if they would say that you know well, okay i understand that this one was associated with uh religious freedom quote unquote but then why do uh, new york city schools need to be closed down right now right you know? why, why do restaurants have to be limited to the number of people like what is it about a religious gathering that makes it exempt from all of these other efforts that are being put in place to you know, protect people. That's it. We're not trying to say you can't practice your religion. We're just trying to protect people. And, right. and what is this? Well, it's, you know, look, it happened at all the churches down in the South during the spring and summer that were against masks that didn't get masks. All of a sudden, you know, the priests are getting COVID and dying. Right. You no, know, yep. it's, it's, it's common sense. Their, their summation and the ruling makes no sense. If it was data driven where they could say, hey, the cases in this specific area are significantly lower than, you know, in Brooklyn versus Manhattan versus whatever, then they're using data to drive their decision. But right now it was just the whole, you know, the whole notion of, of closing down or restricting access to a church was like off limits, regardless of what data they were showed yeah 
And that 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 that's it. They they left it as a religious freedoms argument and did not want to look at anything else. And that, uh, you know, I, if we want to move on from COVID, I think that's a good segue into uh, our. We'll 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 get into the cabinet shortly, but I really want to talk about uh, this this as is very uh, applicable this time of year. This amazing movement of indigenous people reclaiming their lands and over uh, well, we were supposed to get a judgment over the summer. They ultimately uh, left it for the fall, but then the judgment came down in uh, Oklahoma. Uh, SCOTUS ruled uh, that uh, native lands were were never uh, were, were never. Uh, sorry, my dog just pulled a Houdini and found its way <laughs> into my office. I don't know where she came from. Anyway, I guess okay. Uh, anyway, uh, nobody uh, the no official on uh, in any of these uh, tribes ever abdicated their responsibility to take care of the land, never willingly gave them up. And so the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, you know, the, uh, in this case, I believe it was the Navajo, uh, were still in charge of their land and that these Native American lands that were given to them uh, in the treaties after the Trail of Tears and whatnot uh, were still their lands. And right. that and was- Luke, We're not another- talking about a, an acre or an acreage or, you know, a hundred acres, you know, the ruling that you're talking about, about Oklahoma, basically mm-hmm. they stated half of Oklahoma is their yeah. land. Correct. Correct. These are large swaths of land because just to give everybody a quick history lesson, uh, as America was expanding, uh, the U S government realized that they had an, uh, an America, uh, a native American issue. And that Native American issue was that uh, too many of the lands uh, that they wanted to settle were occupied by the Native Americans. And so through horrible cruelty and forced uh, treaties, uh, the leaders of many Native American tribes handed over their ancestral lands that were located in the southeast portion of the country and agreed to be relocated to uh, the Midwest and Western part of the country. And this, these particular tribes uh, were from what is, I believe now, the Georgia area and were unceremonially marched, uh, hence the reference to the Trail of Tears I mentioned earlier. Right. If you don't know what that is, Google it. I encourage you. Sorry, that was my dog. Uh, (laughs) Google it. Uh, You really need to know what the Trail of Tears is. And after this horrific journey on foot, uh, these Native Americans ultimately resettled in what is now modern day Oklahoma and have lived on that land since. And the state of Oklahoma recently brought up a case saying, no, 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 that, that's not your land. That's, that's state land. And we can do with it as, as we please. But thank goodness to me, this is an opinion driven show. So I <laughs> believe this is a very correct uh, ruling. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Supreme Court on July, uh, 
cool. Look at that. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that about half of Oklahoma, excuse me, the, the ruling was supposed to come down last fall. It came down in the summer instead, sorry. Uh, about half of Oklahoma is still indeed Native American land. And therefore people that live on that land and are members of the tribe are still governed under Native American, their tribal law, as opposed to uh, state or federal law. Uh, right. And then now we have um, the, the, the OGs, the indigenous tribe that actually sat down and ate with the pilgrims in 1621, uh, also trying to reclaim their land uh, in the northeast. Well, and if you go back in history, right, I mean, I guess the United States, you know, as a country, we give credit to, um, you know, Columbus discovering America 1492. But in reality, the indigenous Native Americans were already here for hundreds of years before. Correct. So how far this goes is going to be really interesting because they could claim, you know, Nebraska, they, North Dakota, South Dakota, parts of Iowa. I mean, this could go on depending on how these other cases go, because obviously the Oklahoma decision is just one of many to come. And right. then once they they do, you know, say the uh, Supreme Court does rule in their favor in, say, South Dakota. Well, what does that mean for the people that currently live there and have lived there um, is, you know, does that mean that the taxes that they currently pay the state and the city governments. Does that now go to the tribes itself? So there's so much that's going to go into this. Just, you know, thinking about this over the last couple of days yeah. is as these court cases, you know, start locally and then eventually get to the Supreme court, how big is this going to get? And I'm not saying, yeah. you know, it's, you know, I'm with you, you know, their land has been taken. I mean, it was, you know, horrendous what happened, but now the courts got to decide, you know, is, is the land that was, you know, basically in, you know, half a state, two thirds of a state, maybe a whole state, you know, how far is this going to go? Do you think Luke? Well, you know, the, the Supreme court, and this is probably why uh, chief justice Roberts went ahead and ruled the way that he did. The Supreme court said that this case that they ruled on was not setting a precedent because this was a very specific case about a man who had been convicted of, of murder and was sentenced to be executed. And the tribe used the case to say, no, no, the state can't execute him. That would be a tribal decision. Right. And so it was a very, very specific situation. And so therein did not create precedent, meaning that the next case that goes to the Supreme Court could very easily go the other direction. Right. Um, and before but I think I we're going to find that several tribes have very specific cases. Right, exactly. And in terms of taxes and paying, you know, for, for you know, roads and municipalities and whatnot, uh, there are agreements in place where the tribes do pay X amount into the government in order to maintain, 
you know, certain, certain facilities, certain, you know, infrastructure. Sadly, the truth is, is that it's the U.S. government who has traditionally not kept up their end of the deal. The tribes do pay, you know, the, their taxes and their money into the state, into the federal system. And it's our system that has not kept, uh, kept up with their needs. Uh, If if we want to relate this back to our first topic, the biggest topic of the year, COVID, uh, the the cases of COVID on uh, Native American land have been rampant. And it's because they were not given any sort of or or not even uh, given information on how to protect themselves and how to, um, you know, how to treat the sick and whatnot. Um, I, I, I need to research it more and get in, to get into it more in a more educated fashion. But if you just look up um, COVID cases in Native American reservations, uh, the information will be right in front of you. So, you know, we have a history of treating our indigenous people really poorly. And I think you know, I, I, I thought the Oklahoma, the Murphy ruling was a sign of better days ahead for the indigenous people of our country. But now with this new makeup of the court, I think all of that is, is, is in jeopardy. Right. I really do. Yeah. Right. So. so Biden's cabinet. Yes. Biden's cabinet. Yes. Biden's cabinet and other hirings. Uh, are we seeing, I don't know, you know, I, I read an article that was basically uh, Biden's getting the, the, getting, the te- getting the band back together to use a reference to one right. of my all-time favorite movies. You know, he <laughs> is uh, bringing a lot of people in that did indeed serve in the Obama administration Correct. Uh, in, in different capacities. Um, you know, uh, uh, he started with, so let's, let's, let's just start at the, at the top. He started with state. He started with his, uh, the people that will lead the United States for the next four years on foreign affairs. What does that mean to you, Mr. Stutzman? Well, you know, I think one of the obviously kind of back to the basics, I think we're getting people that are extremely experienced they know how the state department works Mm -hmm. they know how um, international policy works they know how to build a coalition of working with others uh you know governments and and you know just looking at the kind of the bios and which is what i really started doing you know as these as these people were you know named just days ago just kind of going through their bios um, you know, Linda Thomas Greenfield, uh, 35-year veteran of, of foreign service. So obviously very well qualified, understands how international policy works. Uh, Love that you could, as, if I, oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. No, you know, you, you know, as the United Nations ambassador, those 35 years are obviously going to be key to getting things back to, you know, what you would kind of call normal. Or, you know, something, you know, that we talked about in our first podcast was, you know, we're not, you know, moving away from the Trump administration and and putting people with no experience 
Biden said, we're going to get back to the basics and we're going to fill these positions with experienced people. And I think that's pretty, pretty basic. Yeah. What, what I wanted to interject about uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield uh, before we moved on uh, to the next post. And I'm so happy that you actually led with this pick because, you know, everybody wants to talk about the, the secretary of state and whatnot, and we'll get, we'll get into that. But Linda Thomas Greenfield, like you mentioned, is a career uh, foreign services, uh, you know, a professional. You know, she has served this country under multiple administrations, has worked in the foreign services corps under Republicans and Democrats alike, and under the, after, what did you say, 35 years in service? Yes. Uh, under the Trump administration, she was actually pushed out. You know, she used to be the Under Secretary of State for African, uh, for African, uh, for Africa, excuse me. Um, you know, she, she is a wealth of knowledge and experience and she is the quintessential example of the type of people that the Trump administration, uh, targeted and successfully pushed out of their positions because they're not political hacks. Let me say right. that again. Right. They're not political hacks. They are truly, truly talented people who know what they're doing. And for Joe Biden to put her, to install her as UN ambassador, I think basically is telling the rest of the world, hey, everything that this this guy tried to do, we're going to try and right the ship. Right. And more, I think more so than his Secretary of State hit, is telling the rest of the world we're ready to take our place back at the head of the table and we're ready to lead again using our experience as coalition builders and as the leaders in bringing the countries of the world together to move in a uh, forward trajectory uh, for the betterment of of humanity quite frankly so i i applaud that pick and i was just thrilled when when i i read into it and and saw uh, more about it and we've got, you know, there's other other folks that he's talking to right now that were currently serving the president, but because they were competent, because they were knowledgeable, because they weren't, you know, there to to just, you know, they weren't there to serve the president. Right. Well, they were fired. And now Biden is, you know, I think, you know, a lot of them are going to be returning in the capacities or similar capacities as they were. You know, a lot of these people, you know, they're servants first and foremost. They're Correct. here to serve the country, not serve Correct. the president. And that's one thing Donald Trump never understood is that anybody in these positions are there to serve a purpose. And that purpose is not to do the president's bidding. If, you know, there's, you know, business that he wanted in Ukraine, you know, there was other people that he kind of tagged and say, hey, it's your job to do X, which has never been their job, will never be their job. And so at the end of the day, and we'll go through more of the picks, but, you know, Biden is just here to clean, clean everything up, get people that are actually experienced in the right positions. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like you said, right the ship from day one. Yeah. I mean, th this is from... You know, the, the, again, I, I, I cannot stress enough uh, how experienced and tenured these people are that he's putting into place. They may not be the, you know, big headliner names that I think some people on the left were hoping for, but I think 
I think anyway, that this is the right way to do this. You know, we're going to put people in place that really know what they're doing to, in an effort to build back uh, what has been uh, taken away from the United States over the past four years, which is, you know, for everybody out there that says, you know, ah, oh, first, we're going to go it alone. No, America is best when it leads. America is best when it is, you know, with its allies and, you know, just look at, you know, what we're doing in China right now, you know, it's one thing for America to try to go it along, uh, go it alone to, um, you know, kind of uh, rein in China, but it's another thing if it's America, the European Union and a host of other uh, countries that are all working on this together. And that is true from everything from climate to Iran, um, to relations in the Middle East. You know, we, we have been, history, history has proven time and time again that America is best when it works with its allies. And America is at its worst when we are um, isolationist and try to separate ourselves from the rest of the world. And uh, for those of you that disagree with me on that, just look up a little World War II history and uh, come at me in our uh, comments. Well, and I was also, you know, I would go as far as, the, you know, to say that Trump kind of, you know, he he treated these positions as if they were, you know, board positions doing yeah. favors for people, yeah. you know, putting someone in charge of the environment when they knew nothing about the environment. They were against, you know, didn't believe in global warming, yeah. weren't, you know, getting data from the scientists. But yet because they were a huge donor to his campaign, all of a sudden he puts that person in that position no experience. And he kind of just did that across the board. Absolutely. Which is why, you know, Biden, you know, is really just getting back to the basics to yeah. write this ship, hopefully starting day one. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing about these particular picks. They are people, right, that are poised to be on the run day one. You know, there, there, there will not be a learning curve for these folks, or it will be a much smaller learning curve because they've been in this apparatus their entire uh, professional careers and they know what they're doing. Um, I want to call out uh, another one of his picks, our new secretary, or hopefully soon to be confirmed, new Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, who will be the first uh, Hispanic American and first immigrant to hold that position. That is very exciting. And then of course, Avril Haines, our new uh, National Intelligence Director, uh, who is poised to be the first woman to hold that role. Yes. Just in case anybody is, you know, not informed on what the National in Intelligence Director does, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, DNI is what uh, I've always heard this per person called the director of national intelligence. After 9-1-1, it was, uh, excuse me, 9-11, it was decided that, or it was uh, not decided, it was realized that our, you know, we have this sprawling, uh, you know, international intelligence apparatus, but none of the agencies were communicating with each other 
Correct. Okay. And so the DNI position was created under W to be the person, kind of the quarterback that, you know, brings all of these different agencies and all of their intelligence into one central hub for the administrative, uh, excuse me, the executive branch uh, to use when making uh, these vitally important decisions around national security. Right. And we're talking FBI, we're talking CIA, we're talking DEA. Yeah. Um, DOJ, every, everything that you've ever heard of, you know, when it comes to intelligence and all of the branches of military have their own intelligence apparatus and whatnot. So it's, we have these sprawling structures in place that gather intelligence either domestically or internationally, and none of them were talking to one another. There was no path for them to be able to right. do that spending and resources in, across different branches doing the same thing a lot of it was yeah exactly and so what happened was you know the, the as we all know as we've all been hearing about if we're following it there's the pres- presidential daily brief all right so the pdb uh joe biden will finally get his first pdb on monday uh, the current president has famously uh, admitted on national television that he doesn't really pay much attention to it. Um, but this is the brief that is put together by the DNI and her, her team every day to let the, country, the, the president have a snapshot of what's going on all around the world. And that only became, you know, that became a much more powerful document after the creation of the National Intelligence Director. So right. I'm, I'm right. thrilled to see Avril Haines, who, again, like all of his picks to this point, is a insanely talented, insanely experienced national intelligence operative. And I'm excited to see her lead on this. Uh, I also want to bring up, you know, we, we, we talked about climate briefly. So John Kerry has been named, and I'm happy to see that CNN uh, is now including him as a cabinet level uh, position. Uh, um, He is our new special presidential envoy on climate. And that is, will be a uh, cabinet level position. And he has been tagged to lead on climate. Bobby, what do you think that is signaling uh, to the world for Biden to create this new cabinet level position? Well, you know, Biden campaigned for months, right, about climate. It's one of the top priorities. Uh, Climate was going to be his top priority. Mm -hmm. Um, And then COVID, you know, obviously COVID changed all that. But, you know, this tells the world that the United States has taken climate change uh, very, very seriously. And um, it'll be John Kerry's responsibility to get us back into the Paris Accords. Yep. And work with all the other countries on, you know, the standards with zero emissions by, you know, some of them are 2045, some of them are 2050, um, you know, but we're, you know, base, basically since we've taken a, a back seat and have completely moved away from climate these last four years, we've got a lot of ground to make up, you know, during the Obama administration, we were more of a, more in a position of holding other countries accountable to the standards that everybody right. agreed upon. But now we've got to play a lot of catch up ourselves. 
Um, yeah. So it's internally focused, but obviously uh, John Kerry, again, like others that have, that are being handpicked has a lot of international experience. And I think we'll be able to streamline that, you know, rather quickly. Yeah. Much like I was just talking about with isolationism, you cannot, you know, I, all right, let me, let me start with this. I have, you know, I have, I have friends all across the political spectrum. I really do. <laughs> and uh, again, here's a plea to anybody out there that would ever like to come on the pod and, uh, you know, disagrees with us or has another uh, set of opinions on things, by all means, let, let's, let's go. Let's talk about this. Let's have open discourse. Um, but I have, you know, people that say to me, like, well, what, why bother making all of the companies in the United States abide by these high, higher standards if the rest of the world, uh, namely China, is not going to abide by that? Well, without international leadership in the name of climate, they're never going, you're correct. Yes, China and the rest of the, Russia and the rest of the world will never get in line with uh, what needs to be done right now, right, right now, what needs to be done on climate. I just heard of a study, I've got to dig into it, it came up in conversation yesterday that um, we're, we're talking about a very short time span here where parts of the United States of America may not, no longer be inhabitable because of either heat or rising sea levels. So we don't have another four years. We don't have another four days. We need to start leading on climate the moment that Joe Biden is sworn into office. And quite frankly, we're already leading on climate because of this, uh, th this, the installation of John Kerry in this role and by Joe Biden saying on day one or within his first few days in office, he will sign an executive order that, put, that puts us right back into the uh, Paris Accord. So it is, um, it's an incredibly, I cannot tell you, especially living in Southern California, uh, right. which is in eminent peril, you know, um, the, I live eight miles off the coast, but some of the most famous Los Angeles uh, uh, locales in the world, Venice Beach, Santa Monica, Malibu, these areas are all in eminent danger for uh, no longer be being inhabitable because of climate change. And we're not talking about your kids' kids. We're not talking about your kids. We're talking about very likely, possibly, unless we do something now, right within our lifetimes. Right. I, I, I am 43 years old. I expect that I will live, hopefully, at least double that, if not more. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, knock on wood. Uh, these, these terrible, terrible things that could be, that could happen to our planet are are within the next 20 to 40 years and so well, to, yeah yeah and look luke just look at all you know we we still call them natural disasters oh, and God, yeah. but if you know over this past summer the states that were getting hammered obviously california colorado right. getting hammered with fires all of the hurricanes that that continue to hammer our shores down in the gulf Florida, I mean, down, down in the South, they're happening a lot more often. They're a more lot more storms, dangerous, a lot more damage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the States can't keep affording reconstruction of billions, every Correct. storm. Correct. 
correct. I, uh, you know, I live in West Hollywood now, but uh, back in my teaching days, I lived out in Calabasas and we lived in this, you know, beautiful, beautiful uh, town home that was out kind of nestled in the Santa Monica mountains. And we actually had to evacuate uh, during the Woolsey fire that destroyed much of Malibu. And to see those flames right there, you know, right, right there coming at you, you know, you see it on TV and I don't think it quite I don't think it quite gets the message across how dangerous, how destructive and how scary this situation is. And after being, you know, driven from my home for nearly a week until we got the all clear and then coming back to my home and it just reeking of, well, it smelled like a campfire for the (laughs) the next several weeks um you know thankfully our home was not destroyed but we we all heard about you know the the terrible destruction that happened in malibu but it's also happened you know throughout other areas the paradise fires and now the colorado was hit terribly with these fires over uh you know over the past few months this is real this is happening now and unless we start making real sacrifices and really changing the way that we do things in a number of different capacities, there, there's just no avoiding it. So I, 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 I am thrilled to see that uh, Biden is, is, and John Kerry is a, just a, 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 talk about another person who has just given their life to the service of the United States of America. Absolutely. Uh, and he is uniquely poised as our former secretary of state and as an outspoken advocate on climate for the most of his uh, recent political career. He is a excellent person to put in this position because he has those relationships at home and more importantly, abroad, where he will be able to start bringing pressure to bear on other uh, countries immediately. This is not, you know, somebody that's just going to be messing around. He'll, he'll be in the face of the diplomats from all of those countries that we need uh, to, to cooperate on this. So now, Luke, before we move on to the next topic, I want all of our listeners to know we've got a map on our website. So go to bobbyandluke.com. And if you go to, um, it's simply titled Biden's Cabinets. We've got a map that will continuously update as Biden selects his team. There are still a lot of positions uh, not selected, like the Secretary of Education, Secretary of Energy, Secretary of Commerce, and several others. But as the um, announcement is made, our, our map gets updated, and then we've got a blog post that kind of goes into more depth over each selection. And then I've also included a link kind of to um, a bio of each candidate. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of information. And I thank you, Bobby, for your uh, intelligence and programming uh, uh, prestige (laughs) to get this in place. So that's great. Uh, And I also wanted to bring up one quick thing before we move on from uh, this topic. And that is because this is not necessarily a cabinet level position, but a very, very important position. 
in the White House, and that is the White House Social Secretary. Uh, what does the White House Social Secretary do? Well, everything that happens at the White House when uh, those big uh, uh, head of state uh, ceremonies and dinners and whatnot are, are held. Uh, this is the person that heads uh, the White House uh, domestic uh, social team in coordinating all of this. And Joe Biden has named the second gay man in history to lead this post, Carlos Elizondo. Uh, he was the, he, he worked for Joe uh, in the first uh, administration and he becomes the second gay man in history. The first gay man served under Barack Obama in this position and he has now been uh, named to be White House Social Secretary. And I thought that was a neat piece of information. He surely will not be the last LGBTQ plus uh, appointment that Joe Biden makes in the coming weeks. You know, that, you know, that's beautiful. And, you know, just thinking about what that means, you know, look at, you know, Joe Biden was in a very, you know, not knowing the future, right. But mm -hmm. as vice president, he got to see firsthand and, you know, famously, Whenever there were tough decisions made, Barack always had Biden in the room at the end of every conversation. So, mm -hmm. you know, the experience that Biden brings, not just on policy, but more importantly, on people, right? He yep. knows who did what, how, how good they were. And, and now he's in this position of, you know, and also being in, you know, the Senate for, you know, 40 plus years. It, you know, now kind of pick hand selecting those people that did a great job during their run with Barack Obama, but then also, you know, other contexts and, and his connections um, in, in selecting these people. And it's all about experience. Yes. Yes. There has and yet to be anybody selected that has not do already done what he's hand selecting them to do, which is the exact opposite of the last administration. Yes, he, and this this pick is no different. Uh, uh, he served in the Obama administration, as I mentioned. He also served all the way back in the Clinton-Gore administration. Uh, he has coordinated things such as the last papal visit to the United States, the Centennial Olympic Games, the NATO 50th Anniversary Summit. Uh, and he's also held many positions outside of government, uh, including uh, most recently being the Senior Director of Presidential Events at Georgetown and the Director of Special Activities and Protocol at Walt Disney World. So this is a man with extraordinary credentials, um, much like everybody else uh, that uh, Biden has named. Uh, he is also Hispanic, so wonderful to see the, the broad diversity that uh, President-elect Biden is already bringing in to the fold. Well, you know, and he's building his A-team, right? I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. build, you know, when you are, are going to start your new administration or even, you know, in, in a job that we can relate to maybe a, a store director of a new store, mm -hmm, you're starting mm -hmm. a new business, a new restaurant, you know, as the chief executive, you're wanting to, you know, to build the best team around you. And exactly. so those that are saying this is just another Obama administration, no, you, know, no. you know, the big difference is, is, 
they're they're doing kind of similar roles, but yet they're in different positions. They've got a lot more responsibility. You know, they've got that, you know, that first eight years of experience. And now they're they're the one that's in charge. They're the cabinet member. And then they're going to be building their A teams. So, you know, these have been very smart, very experienced. And I I have yet to hear from the right and anybody that's on the right that doesn't agree with any of these picks. Like Luke said earlier, we highly encourage you to jump on a pod with us. But I have yet to hear anything really that that sticks as a a negative on any of these picks. Yeah, and we're we're expecting in the coming week, uh, I believe, possibly as soon as Tuesday, to see Janet Yellen uh, nominated to be Secretary of the Treasury. She would be the first woman to hold that role. She is, if you've never heard the name Janet Yellen, you perhaps had your head in a hole for a while. She's um, a complete she's, badass, right? Yeah. 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 She's pretty much the, the, and so again, people are like, oh, well, why isn't it uh, Elizabeth Warren? There are so many things at play here when it comes to these cabinet level positions. I don't want anyone to think for a minute, Biden is playing it quote unquote safe because he's worried that he'll have to get these people through a McConnell uh, confirmation. I think what he's doing is finding the most experienced people possible and putting them in position. Aces in their places, I think is what we call that. Right. And, uh, you know, so I I don't, you know, if we see Bernie Sanders as the Secretary of Labor, as a a lot of progressives are hoping for, I don't know. But I do know this. Whoever does get named in that position will be badass and really great at that role. So, I, yeah, I mean, I look what the Dow did once Yellen was announced. I mean, Trump yeah. can take credit, you know, whatever. But right. when when Yellen was announced there. was when, you know, the Dow was was very positive to the announcements. Yeah. And yeah. now you've got other corporations that are reaching out to her, wanting to work with her. And um, yeah, she's she is a badass. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, mention uh, in the in these in this in this hyper political age, <laughs> we have to remember that experience still matters. Okay, experience actually having work been in the room, actually having you know done the things that we need these people to do still matters. Experience matters. I'm sorry, Mr. Outgoing President Trump, experience matters. And, you know, that was, that was, that was, he rode to to victory on this whole thing of, oh, you need somebody that's never done this before to, you know, really, uh, you know, you know, shake things up. Well, here we are four years later being led by inexperience and uh, damn, I, 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 I mean, where are we? You know, I think there was a, a meme floating around uh, talking about, you know, if you would have told me four years ago that Trump would be leaving office with the economy in shambles in the country, um, you know, wrecked by whatever that might be a pandemic in this case, uh, I would not have been surprised. And that's because experience matters. Having been in the room before matters. And, you know, facts are still facts, folks. And, yep. you know, I just didn't want to end uh, without saying that. Well, and inexperience, it 
just doesn't leave the White House. It it also transfers over to his legal team. Um, (laughs) As the breaking news today was that a federal judge denied um, the state of Pennsylvania from from, um, you know, basically they wanted the certification of votes to be denied and pending an investigation and, you know, all the conspiracy theories that have gone into his legal team. And the judge says, no, that's simple. Yep. Yep. The, the legal challenges are drying up quickly. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, Rudy Giuliani, the, from America's uh, lawyer to the cousin Eddie. Uh, yeah, Luke, the what the fuck happened film? to Rudy G- you know, Giuliani? After 9-11, he was like the man. I don't fucking know, man. I just don't know. Well, he, he, you know, he went from the, the American, what was the slogan? The American mayor. America's, America's mayor. Yeah. Ma- yeah, America's mayor. And now he, he's just a fucking meme. Yeah, re- re- routinely... Uh, at least back when I lived in New York City, thought back of, you know, pretty fondly, you know, New Yorkers liked him, liked what he did to lead the city after 9-11. And uh, now after a failed presidential bid, he is just, uh, you know, just a, a sad, sad man uh, with uh, a few fingers of scotch. And uh, that's about <laughs> it. You know, that's about it. So, so look, everybody, I want to, in the coming weeks, do a little uh, uh, discussion on confirmation bias. Uh, we've, we've all been hearing uh, many, many uh, of the Republicans slash Trumpism, uh, Trumpists uh, fleeing uh, Twitter and other social medias for parlor. Um, which yeah, is basically parlor. becoming an uh, yeah an echo chamber for uh, you know extreme right views. Uh, what is more important to you, having somebody confirm what you already believe, or being challenged in that belief and being made to really think about that belief? You know what what's more, and would you would you rather be in an echo chamber or would you rather have a conversation with somebody who truly believes something? Uh, antithetical to what you believe in. Uh, of course, I want this to be a facts-driven conversation. So that's going to be hard, Luke, with people that use Parler. I've downloaded it. I've created an account, and holy shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we 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 why 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 do we resist uh, actually truly being persuaded so much? You know, like, what is it about about human beings that make us do that? Right. Um, I also want to get into this uh, treatment of whistleblowers in the Trump era. There is a wonderful article in The New Yorker right now by uh, the one and only Ronan Farrow uh, about the treatment of a certain whistleblower. Um, We'll get into that, but I know we're running long right now. And so before we uh, end, well, actually, two, two, three things before we end. Quick, bang, bang, bang. I promise you, Bobby. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've been a little long-winded today. Okay, so we've seen our first Trump pardon. Uh, Michael Flynn, who uh, pled guilty to lying to the FBI, has now Twice. been given a yeah, yeah <laughs> has now been given uh, a full pardon uh, by the president. Uh, what are we going to see in the coming days when it comes to him? Uh, pardoning his uh, collaborators and is a self-pardon 
possible. Yes. <laughs> I also want to touch. Nothing briefly. is off the table with this guy. Exactly. But the beauty of what's going on in the state of New York is that there are lawsuits coming his way and pending lawsuits that he cannot pardon, pardon himself out of. So right. with Remember that said, the, yeah. Yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah, the presidential pardon only uh, only goes as far as federal prosecution. So state prosecution, which, as Bobby just mentioned, Trump is he's in the deep end on that. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yesterday was Thanksgiving, a very happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners uh, that celebrate. Uh, we did get to see a Thanksgiving Day parade. I don't know about all of you, but this is one of my uh, traditions from childhood that I've always held on to. Uh, living in New York City, I had the great opportunity to actually attend the parade in the grandstands in Herald Square a couple of times. Very cool. And I thought that uh, Macy's and NBC and all of their partners did a damn good job of putting on a parade in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, it was it was cut down from its typical uh, almost two mile uh, route to literally just a block. Uh, they they just went across the grandstands there that which were empty, of course. Right. Um, but then today to see on social media so many people, you know, panning the event uh, as a disgrace i just was like come on folks like you know we're in the middle of a pandemic they did their best you know why are we why are we you know jabbing them you know i, I you know and some of the comments were that you know is this really how we need to be spending money right now look how macy spends their money is up to them and how you know the city of new york you know Yes, of course, had to spend some money in, 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 in security and whatnot for the event, but it, it is something that brought, I think, a lot of Americans a little ray of sunshine, a little ray of hope in an otherwise really dreary world, and I say good on you. Any thoughts on that, well, It was a little sense of normalcy. People were wearing masks. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, like you said, it was, you know, a fraction of what it normally is, Um you know, we watched it for a little bit. I didn't watch the whole thing, but you know, it was, it was, it was part of, you know, one's normal life that, you know, like since childhood watching the parade is part of your Thanksgiving day. And, uh, you know, it was very tasteful and it was, you know, it was well done. Yeah. And to close, or at least my closing thought uh, on this again, I already, outed myself as a proud uh, Times, uh, New York Times reader. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, get, I get it all, folks. I've got my digital uh, subscription. I also uh, get all of their daily briefs and whatnot. Uh, and this uh, past day on Thanksgiving, uh, the uh, usually the morning, the New York Times morning edition is filled with, you know, just little clips of what's going on around the world. It's a good quick read to see what's happening. Uh, he dedicated it to I am thankful. And what he did was, excuse me, let me give credit to David Le uh, Leonhard, uh, the writer, the journalist in char uh, and, uh, responsible for this. He asked uh, Americans you know, please write a six word memoir about 2020. Um, they received over 10,000 responses. I, of course, will not give you all 10,000. Um, it, it's really 
really beautiful, but also a stirring remembrance of what we've been through for the past year. Everything from ambulance took him, he came home from, I held my husband's dying hand. Uh, the entire uh, you know, year of ups and downs is, uh, is covered. And I will leave you with the, uh, the six word phrase that they uh, led the article with, which is something that I, you know, I miss desperately the facial interactions that you have with just random strangers on the street. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm still to this day, a pretty smiley guy, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, I, I try to stay positive. I, I try to stay optimistic and I try to give, uh, even strangers on the street, a smile when I walk by them. And the, the phrase that this reporter kicked it off with was the crinkling eye above the mask. The undeniable look, well, that was the six word phrase. I'll now, of course, go on. That undeniable look in the eye that you see when you know that person is smiling under that mask. And uh, absolutely, I, that I awesome. think that that's, you know, all you need to say. There will be brighter days ahead for America. You know, we're in tough ones right now, but, you know, stay safe out there and uh, we will be together with, with hugs and kisses again soon enough. Absolutely. And we want to thank our sponsor, the Stutzman Group. We want to thank Absolutely. all of our listeners across six continents now, across many platforms. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is episode six. Everything is just going to get better. And as we stated in previous podcasts, if there are topics or you yourself want to hop on and join us for an episode, Go to bobbyandluke.com forward slash contact. Let us know and we'll get in contact with you to make the arrangements for you to join us or simply just include the topics you would like us to discuss and we'll do our research and get them all lined up. Until then, wear your mask, wash your hands, socially distance, and we'll talk to everybody soon. Stay safe, everyone.